Welcome to the Bay Area Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to make passionate, maturing followers of Jesus from here to the nations. We hope you will be changed by this message and invite you to visit us in the greater Annapolis area. If you would like to learn more about our church and ministries, please visit our website at bayareacc.org. Well, good morning, especially if you're watching us online or if you're in Odenton or Easton. Glad to have you this morning. My name is Greg St. Cyr, and I have the joy of leading us to talk about the greatest enemy in your life today. And uh, Brian Regan, and some of you are Brian Regan fans, uh, he actually alludes to it. It's this battle inside that says, you, me, you, me, you, me. And uh, what I'm talking about is pride. And the reason I showed that is because of the line that Brian Regan says, what is it about the human condition that people get something out of that? We live in a society and a world that is filled with self-exaltation. Professional athletes, they uh, march around like a proud peacock strutting their stuff, do they not? Uh, Many a politician can fill the room with his or her ego. Celebrities, because they're lauded by all of their fan base, it's easy for them to be puffed up. And lest we just like throw stones at them... We're the exact same way. And the problem that we're going to talk about this morning is the problem of pride. Now, I don't have to look too far in my life to identify pride. Uh, Just last week, we were preparing to go away for the weekend to California, but it had been a pretty busy week. Monday night, we started a brand new missional community in our house. Tuesday night, we said goodbye to our old missional community that was launching us out. Wednesday, I had an elders meeting, and Mary Kay led two Bible studies on Wednesday, and now we're about to leave on Thursday. Of course, I had conveniently left all of the packing to her and all the arrangements to her. But about Wednesday, my wife was feeling a little bit neglected. You know, it's a shocking thing to me sometimes when I realize that my wife actually wants a relationship with me. Can you imagine that? Like she actually wants to communicate. Now, I am, for those of you who don't know me well, I am a nice task-oriented guy. And so I tend to be more on the task side. And so I've got a lot of things going on and she's feeling just a bit neglected. And really all she needed was an emotional connection with her husband. But she began to share her emotions in a less than... uh, A way that did not necessarily minister to me. Let's put it like that, right? And so rather than respond in a godly way, there was a low level of frustration deep down inside me. And that frustration was about our kitchen cabinets. Because Mary Kay wanted to paint. She wanted to paint these kitchen cabinets gray. And I thought that, uh, you know, the tan color that they were was just fine. But I had agreed to this. And so as she begins to have this emotional conversation, I begin to lecture her about the kitchen cabinets. Now, ladies, how do you think that one went, right? (laughs) Not so good. And immediately I knew, deep down inside, I knew that I was absolutely in the flesh. I knew that I was carnal, if I can use that term, that Greg was clearly on the throne, but I did not care at that moment. I was not going to apologize. I was not going to own my own sin. I could justify it. I could rationalize it. 
but I wasn't going to own it for about two hours. Then I did come around, ladies, so just to bring resolution, men, I did. But what was at the root of all that? The root of it all, pride, right? And that's what we're going to look at this morning in Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And here's the context here, that Paul is very concerned about the unity of the church. And so in the midst of this concern, he pens these words, and I'm going to read it from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It reads like this. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to your own personal interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, before we unpack this, I don't want to be left alone here with the problem of pride. So I decided to do a pop quiz this morning with you. Here's a pop quiz on pride. I'm going to ask you some questions. Do you spend more time thinking about yourself than you think about God or others? Who do you think more about? How about this one? Do you have a hard time saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong? Do you make yourself the center of most conversations? Do you have difficulty taking criticism from others? Do you think that you're indispensable? Do you think that your accomplishments somehow entitle you to special favors? Do you think you deserve more than other people do just because it's you? Do you fixate on social media likes instead of the stories being shared? Does your eye go first to the number of likes? Well, if that's you, the Apostle Paul, and that is certainly me, the Apostle Paul has a word for us. Let's look at it beginning in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It reads like this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, when Paul says, so if there, it's not like it's, there's the question of uncertainty. It's a certain fact. It could be translated since there is. And so, so if, and for certain there is, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy. Here's what he's saying. Have you ever had conflict? What is the posture that is God-honoring that will enable you to enter into conflict and help bring a sense of unity? He gives us the four legs of the chair of conflict. And here are the four things that he says. These four legs of, for unity are this. First, encouragement of Christ. This idea of encouragement is the word help or comfort. Jesus Christ, living on the inside, gives us encouragement and comfort in times of conflict. The love of God, which has been shed abroad in our hearts. 
And uh, God's love enables us to love those who are acting in an unloving way. Fellowship of the Spirit. We, as followers of Jesus, have the Holy Spirit living on the inside. We have fellowship with Him, and so therefore can work towards fellowship in the body. And then finally, affection and sympathy. We have a heart of affection. We can sympathize. In a word, we have compassion with others. So if these four legs of the chair of unity are a part of what's happening on the inside, then regardless of the conflict, you can enter in and God can actually use you to help bring unity. Now, Paul goes on in verse 2 to follow this up by saying this, because all these things are true, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind to be of the same mind. Here's what he's asking for. He's saying, I want you as a church family to be focused on Jesus and the gospel of Jesus and to be in agreement around the person of Jesus. He goes on and says, having the same love. This is a supernatural love, an unconditional, sacrificial love that does not show partiality towards others. And so our love is to be unconditional, being in full accord and of one mind. And here we pick up the idea of unity. What Paul is challenging us and the Philippian church is that we would be in agreement around the person of Jesus, filled with his love, so that there is unity in the body of Christ. Now, with this as a background, we're going to dive into what I really want to talk about. And he gives a warning to us in verse 3. And that warning looks like this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. What is this thing called selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is the single-minded pursuit of what I think I deserve, regardless of the cost and impact on other people. Selfish ambition is that kind of ambition that tears down other people in order to get what I want. I want something and nothing is going to stand in my way. I will do what it takes because I'm being driven by selfish ambition. And as a matter of fact, if you get in my way, I will become very impatient Impatience is often an indicator of somebody who has a selfish ambition. Then he uses the word conceit. And to be conceited refers to having an exaggerated view of self. It is a person who is seeking their own personal glory. And for them, it's important that you admire me. It's important that you like me. And it's important for me to be the best foot forward kind of guy. These are all indications of conceit. A conceited person is arrogant. And as a matter of fact, they actually live in this fantasy world 
where they see themselves as the most important or the most significant or the most beautiful or the most gifted person in the room. And yet at the same time, they are consumed by what others think of them. The conceited person is always right and expects you to agree with him or her. And if you disagree, they become very angry. A conceited person is all about the selfie. And they take lots of selfies. And they want to make sure that they're prominent in the selfie. That would be the marks of a potential. I'm stepping on toes here, I know. So I'll soften it. The marks of a potentially conceited person. As a matter of fact, the King James Version here translates the word conceit as vain glory. It is a person filled with vanity, and yet they are actually, it's an empty kind of glory. So the, the selfish ambition says this, get out of my way. That's selfish ambition. The conceited person says, hey, look at me. See how great I am. So I was thinking about this and how to illustrate this, and I thought of the acronym that's pretty popular these days, G-O-A-T, GOAT. Probably most, most of you know what GOAT means, right? Greatest of all time. And so I was thinking about the arrogance behind that statement. And then you know who that's attributed to? It's attributed to Muhammad Ali. The greatest of all. And, and some would argue that he is, right? He won the Olympic gold, the heavyweight champion of the world. And so I was thinking about some of Muhammad Ali's quotes. And uh, the man did not lack humility. I mean, <laughs> this is what he says. I'm not the greatest. I'm the double greatest. I'm the boldest, the prettiest, the most superior, most scientific, most skillfulest fighter in the ring today. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. I wrestled with an alligator. I tussled with a whale. I handcuffed lightning. I thrown thunder in jail. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. I should be a postage stamp. That's the only way I'll ever get licked. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> we think that's funny, and it is a little bit funny, but in reality, we're in that. I mean, we might be a little bit more discreet. Our pride might not be out there that far, but we can see ourselves. Now, in contrast to that, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others more important than yourself. And then verse 4 reads like this. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, who does that? Who really puts the interests of others ahead of themselves? Who considers others more important than themselves? This is what Paul is calling us to. And the reason that you and I do not do that is because of the me monster. It is because of pride. The solution to pride is humility. Humility. Now, 
before we can talk about humility, we really have to understand the horror of pride. So for the next 20 minutes or so, I want us to really grasp where pride comes from and what pride is all about. You see, the problem on the surface is self. It's the self-life. And the self manifests this way. It's self-willed. It's self-reliant. It's self-exaltation. To be self-willed says, I have every right to do what I want to do. I will make my own decisions. That's a self-willed person. A self-reliant person is someone who says, I got this one. I don't need any help. Everything is under control. It's all good. That's a self-reliant person. A self-exalting person is somebody who says, I'm better than others. I'm entitled. I deserve what's coming to me, right? That would be a self-exalting person. Now, all of that is a problem, but there's something deeper. There's something that's driving the self-life. And what is actually driving the self-life is pride. Pride is what manifests itself in the self-life. And the very first sin in the universe was not a sin that was committed on earth. The very first sin in the universe was a sin that was committed in heaven. And I want to show it to you. And here I'm talking about the fall of Lucifer, who was the highest of all the angelic beings. He was known as the anointed cherubim. His fall, and it's rooted in pride. And we see a description of this in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 and following. It reads like this. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So here is Lucifer. He is full of wisdom, full of beauty, and he is placed in the garden of God in Eden. And look at this description of him. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius and topaz and diamond, beryl and onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. The cherub is an angelic order, and the cherubim actually were in the garden, and they were guarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here is the anointed cherub, the highest of all of the angels. And look, it reads further. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked, which is a way of saying, you walked in my very presence. Now, going on, verses 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness 
was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now here it is. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Now, that should cause us to absolutely shudder. It was Satan's beauty. It was his power. It was his wisdom that led to his pride. And his pride then caused him to rebel. Then his rebellion led to his destruction and he was cast down. You see, beauty, wisdom, and power, though they are amoral, if they are not sanctified, if they are not consecrated to God, they very easily give way to pride. And that's exactly what happened. And then pride gives way to rebellion. And rebellion against God always receives his judgment. We see this further in Isaiah chapter 14. And again, the, the picture of the fall of Satan. I want you to notice five times Satan says, I will. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will set, sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And here it is. I will make myself like El Elyon, the Most High. And what are the consequences? But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Oh, I don't feel like I'm communicating clearly enough. So let me break it down. Here's the problem. The motivation is pride. And pride then leads to a certain action. And that action is rebellion. And the result, the goal of rebellion is that we want to be equal with God. We want to play God in our life. We choose independence from God, and that always, always brings destruction. And if Satan, who was perfect in beauty and wisdom and power and had no sin, somehow was led to, to the sin of pride, well, I shudder to think the challenges that you and I have. Now, the next sin that we see is actually the sin in the Garden of Eden. And most of us are familiar with this story. And so in Genesis chapter 3, here's what happens. God creates Adam and Eve to be in fellowship with him and to be dependent upon him. This is what God wants, fellowship and dependence. It is out of that fellowship and dependence that God wants you and me to reign and rule on the earth as his representatives. This was God's plan. But then comes Genesis chapter 3. And the devil now takes the form of a serpent. He comes to Eve and he says... 
Has God told you that you cannot eat of any of the fruit in the garden? Now, that is a distortion of the truth. The devil, his tactics are always the same. He wants to, us to discredit the truth of God and his word. And then he wants us to doubt the goodness and love of God. And so he begins to discredit the truth. And Eve responds this way. No, the Lord has said we can eat of any tree of the fruit of the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day we eat that, we will surely die. This is what she says. Now, in verse 4 and 5, we see the words of Satan. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and, here it is, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Why did Satan fall? Satan fell because of pride, led to independence, because he wanted to be equal with God. He wanted to be like God. He takes the same thing that he fell, the same reasons of his fall, and now tempts Eve with the same thing. And of course, you know the rest of the story. She eats of the forbidden fruit, gives some to Adam, and immediately destruction, devastation enter. Death enters. Death being separation. They're separated spiritually from God. Physical death enters. There's alienation between Adam and Eve, and all of creation now suffers under the impact of that decision. So here's the thing. The motivation is pride. The action is rebellion. The goal is independence. And it always leads to destruction. So if you don't remember anything else, here's what I want you to take away this morning. The essence of pride is independence. Pride seeks to live independently of God. As a matter of fact, any person who is not living in willing dependence on God is motivated by pride. Any person who is not living in willing dependence on God is actually being motivated by pride. You say, well, that's, that's not true. Well, let, let me demonstrate it. For example, all of us think about the future, right? We make our plans. We make our plans for our families. We make our plans for vacation. We make our plans for our investments. We make our plans for retirement, whatever it might be, right? If you are making those plans for your future independent of God, you are manifesting pride. Pride is the motivation that leads to independence. James chapter 4 says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and engage in business there and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live 
and do this or that. And then he concludes by saying, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So to make our plans independent of God is in reality the manifestation of pride. Well, let's talk about work or let's talk about being a student, right? If you go to work and do your job independent of God, without depending upon God, then in reality, you are manifesting pride because God never intended for us to be independent. We are contingent beings. We move and breathe and have our being because of God. Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells this parable. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, note the I will statements here. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now to the natural mind, that sounds perfectly natural. I've had a bountiful year. So what am I going to do? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear my barns down and build bigger ones. And I, I'm going to store that. And I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And I'm going to live the good life. Now, it's not the, the sin is not the fact that you're having a bountiful year. We can praise Jesus for that. The sin is living in independence. And Jesus replies this way. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So when we do our job independent of God, then we are manifesting pride. One more, and that is just in general living independently from God. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it points to a lifestyle of independence. It reads like this. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The boastful pride of life, that is living as though God really didn't matter. That is living my life as if God has no rightful authority over my life. How does God feel about this? Let me state it again. How does the sovereign, omnipotent, loving, creator God feel about you and me when we're living independently of him? He hates it. He opposes it, and he judges it. God hates pride. God opposes pride, 
and God will punish pride. In the book of Proverbs, we read this, I hate pride and arrogance. In James, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So God is in opposition to you and me when we're living a lifestyle of pride. And then back to Proverbs, it says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Pride keeps us from seeing our sin. It keeps us from confessing our sin. It keeps us from being able to say, I am sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Pride makes us unteachable because we already know it all. Pride keeps me from being self-aware. And it leads me to create my own fantasy reality. Pride doesn't want to submit to authority. Pride says, I'm right, I'm deserving, I'm better. A proud person is an impatient person, a boastful person, an arrogant person. And pride has caused 10,000 heartaches. Isn't that true in your life? It certainly is in my life. How many missed opportunities because of pride? How much conflict could have been resolved if I had just entered in with humility? Pride is a destroyer. Pride is the motivator that leads us to rebel and then causes us to live a life of independence. I... Um, I usually sleep really well, uh, but for some reason, Friday night, really early Saturday morning, just a couple of days ago, I woke up at 3 a.m., and that's unusual for me, and so I was not all that happy about it because it's Saturday morning, and I know I'm preaching uh, Saturday evening, and so it's like, this is not blessing me, Lord, to wake up early. So I lay there for an hour or so. And then I asked this very novel question. It's 4 a.m. in the morning. I said, Lord, is there anything you want to say to me? <laughs> and I'm thinking about pride. Is there any area that's like deep in my life? And God did not audibly speak, but I got a strong sense and this, if it was a conversation, the conversation would have gone like this. Yes, Greg, there is something in your life. Really, God will show me what it is. Well, you've been carrying a weight for a number of years. Well, what is that weight? Now, you might not be able to identify directly with this, but I think you'll understand. It's the weight of preaching You've been carrying a heavy weight for a long time. Now, my rationalistic side would want to say, well, of course, I mean, this is such a serious responsibility. This is a very weighty matter. But this is where he was pinpointing. The reason it's so weighty is because of your pride. Because you know, you listen to all these radio preachers and you compare yourself deep down to them. And the congregation listens to all these amazing preachers 
and you feel like somehow out of your insecurity that you have to be at that standard. And that is pride. The Lord was absolutely right. That is absolutely right. And so there at 4.30 a.m. Saturday morning, white, white flag of surrender. Lord, you are right. I repent. You know, the hardest thing for a proud person is to say, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And then to confess their sin. And that's what I want us to do now as we close this message. Psalm 32 is a beautiful psalm. And it says this, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David writes, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So I want to invite you right now to go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes. And I want to encourage you, allow the spotlight of God's Spirit to shine into your heart and to illuminate any pride, any act of independence that would be manifesting itself in your life, that manifests itself in rebellion and a lifestyle of independence, which at its core is saying, I want to be like God. And the result of that is always devastation.